Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Bill. This is Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. I'm your host, Steve Showolf. This is episode one. Here comes the judge. First of all, a mediation podcast. What's a mediation podcast and why would somebody want to have one? Well, first of all, I'm a mediator. I litigated for 25 years. And in litigation, there's nothing better than the one or two days in which You get that favorable ruling. You make that great argument. But the reality is litigation, the other 362 days, is discovery disputes. It's research. And all of those things are great. But as a mediator, every day is potentially judgment day. Every day is an opportunity to assist people who previously have been unable to come to any type of resolution to go on with their lives. So I find mediation to be a great opportunity. I find it to be fulfilling. And I find the nuances of it to be fascinating. And so I thought having a mediation podcast would be something that hopefully somebody other than my mother and immediate family would find interesting as well. So before we introduce our guest and get into some other specifics in more detail, I wanted to make sure people had a general understanding of what mediation is. And today, I'll be taking a look at the Kane County, Illinois, local rules of the 16th Judicial Circuit. Article 10.1 talks about the purpose of Kane County's mediation program. In it, that rule says, mediation under these rules involves a confidential process in which a neutral mediator, selected by the parties or appointed by the court, assists the parties in reaching a mutually acceptable agreement. Mediation is intended to be a more informal and non-adversarial process than litigation and court proceedings. The mediator will assist the parties in identifying issues, fostering joint problem solving, exploring settlement alternatives, and reaching an agreement. Parties and their representatives are required to mediate in good faith. So there's a lot to unpack there. Mediation is confidential. A mediator needs to be perceived by all parties as neutral. A mediator's job is to assist the parties because it's the parties who ultimately have control over the mediation process and ultimately determine whether they will or will not settle a case. It's informal as opposed to proceedings in front of a judge, and the mediator is tasked with identifying issues. Now, this podcast is going to focus a lot on the type of issues that mediators can identify and ways in which they can assist parties in resolving disputes. Certain disputes are straight legal. The parties just may disagree about what the law says, and their attorneys are telling them that their particular point of view is going to be vindicated in court. Other disputes are more emotional. I've had specific training to be a family law mediator, and those disputes tend to be much more personal, and the ways to resolve a dispute that is more emotional and personal can be different than a dispassionate business dispute. And finally, 
I've done a lot of civil litigation in high dollar categories. And the one thing that I find fascinating is I have heard throughout the course of my 25 year career from very intelligent lawyers that they became lawyers because they hate math. And the ironic thing of that is deciding when to settle a case involves an analysis of risk. And people who analyze risk wind up unfortunately to them, maybe, using a little more math than they're prepared to do. And so sometimes this podcast will delve a little bit more into numbers than law. Sometimes we'll focus more on law than numbers. But that's enough about the overall podcast and me. I'd like to introduce the guest for our first episode. I am very proud to have him here. It's the Honorable Clint Hull, Clint is a circuit court judge in the Felony and Special Order Division in Kane County, Illinois. All rise. Clint, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we're going to start this out, which may become a tradition on this podcast, and that's a little bit of a game for you. So I think it's fair to say, and some judges probably are more concerned about this than others, but it's fair to say that as a judge, you hope most of your rulings, if they are appealed, are upheld as opposed to being reversed. That is correct. (laughs) So we're going to play a little game. It's a modification off of a game that Monty Hall used to play, a game show game. It uh, helps the game show theory of mediation. There's three doors, Clint. Behind two doors, there are scathing opinions by, call it Judge Posner or Judge Easterbrook saying that your decision in an underlying case was clearly uh, contrary to the law and that they're reversing. Behind the other door is a decision that goes all the way up to the Supreme Court in a surprising turn of events. Justices Ginsburg and Alito, a unanimous opinion for the Supreme Court, determining that the judicial opinion from the trial court judge, Judge Hull, should now be put in case books all across America as the pillar of jurisprudence. So you clearly would like to pick the door with the unanimous decision. I want that door, Steve. Okay, excellent. So here's the rules of the game. I'm going to give you the opportunity to pick door number one, door number two, or door number three. After you select the door that you select, I am going to reveal a door that contains one of Judge Posner's scathing reversals of your opinion. So there will be two doors remaining after that, and I will give you the opportunity to switch or stick. Do you understand the rules, Judge? I do understand the rules. Excellent. And you're still willing to play? I am here and ready to go. Excellent. Much appreciated. (laughs) All right. So what door are you selecting? Well, my favorite number is number three, so I'm going to go with door number three. All right. You selected door number three, and I'm now here to tell you that behind door number two was a scathing dissent. So door number two is out of the options. So you now can stay with your original choice, door number three, or because I'm such a nice podcast host, I'm allowing you to switch to door number one. Steve, three has treated me well. I still love that number, and I'm going to stick with door number three. All right. Thank you very much, Judge Hall. I hope it's something that your judicial career can overcome, but it is, unfortunately, a scathing dissent. Now, there actually is a reason that we're playing this game. 99% of people, it might not be that high, do exactly what you do. Why don't you tell me 
why'd you stick with door number three? Well, first of all, uh, I like the fact that it didn't, uh, it wasn't one of the scathing uh, opinions when I first picked it. I was comfortable with it. And most people feel that way. And so there's two things that are going on here. One is mathematical and one is psychological. Now, it's true you could have wound up picking the correct one. To illustrate the point of math and psychology here, you wound up losing for staying. From a mathematical standpoint, you double your chances of winning if you switch. Now, most people react in the way, this is obviously only audio and not video, the judge is giving me a little bit of a look as if I misquoted some case in front of him. The, the reason is, and for anybody who's going to be more interested in this than we'll probably get in with Judge Hull today, I will have on a future podcast an author of the book, The Monty Hall Problem, Jason Rosenhaus, who is a professor of mathematics, who will walk us through this a little bit more. But the basic premise is this. Judge Hull, when you first selected, what was your likelihood of success when you first selected door number three? One and three. So the real question then becomes, did you get any information that made you believe that your likelihood of success increased from one and three to one and two? Intuitively, you obviously felt you did because most people, when they look at it, say, it's a 50-50 proposition, why would I switch? You read, you read me 100%. So the question, though, is it goes back to the rules of the game. The rules of the game were I was going to show you a door with one of the dissents. And we knew I obviously had the opportunity to do that because with two dissents, I would always be able to show that to you. The gut feeling that most people have that because there's two remaining doors, there's a 50-50 chance of winning is only true if when I reveal a door, I randomly reveal a door. And if I could have revealed the door in which Alito and Ginsburg were in agreement, and then you just lost because you didn't choose that, but I don't, and there's two doors left. In that scenario, mathematically, you have a 50-50 chance. But in the scenario where we talked about, there was no reason for you to believe that your original selection of one and three actually increased. This problem is something that has been analyzed more than you would think for a small problem. And it goes not only into mathematics, it goes into psychology because the funny thing is, not only do people you know, not perceive that there's a mathematical benefit for switching, most people do exactly what you did. And that's they stay because what's the worst thing in the world? The worst thing in the world is to pick something and then to go away, right? I mean, you're fine with losing going, I picked the wrong door. But what you're going to lose sleep over is... I picked the right door and that jerk made me switch to the wrong door. And so I think though that tells a lot about human psychology and I think it impacts a little bit about how we perceive new information, how we process it, and how sometimes we can be stubborn. One question that I'm going to have for Mr. Rosenhaus is, I read his book, he cites different psychological experiments and supposedly, I have no idea how they do this, but Pigeons can be trained to more quickly understand 
that switching is better than humans. And that there are some humans, even some mathematicians, who had a lot of pushback on this simple problem. It actually was in Parade Magazine and then the New York Times. It caused a lot of uproar. And so it's a fun problem to use. But as a mediator, for me, the importance of it is to always remind people of a couple of things. One is you can't always be so certain that your view of the universe is correct. And you need to always come into a situation like mediation or negotiations anytime you walk into court and recognize that maybe something is different than how you analyzed a case six months ago, how you first looked at the case. And I think that the Monty Hall problem can help parties at least realize that they need to walk into you know, mediation in an open mind. And the other thing, just flat out, that this problem shows, Mr. Rosenhaus talks about the 10 stages of denial that his students go through when he tries to you know, walk through with them, is that sometimes the human mind doesn't always wrap its you know, mind around probability. And even the simplest probability can be more difficult. And when you're talking, like I said, about mostly civil litigation, in which parties on both sides are trying to approximate what the likelihood of success is for something, what are my chances to prevail, they have to realize that's not a science. And at some point, some of the assumptions that they may be making with their model and their analysis need to be open to you know further review. But one question I had for you is if I changed the number of doors, I told you it'd be the same game. There's a million doors. After you select the door, I am going to reveal 999,998 scathing opinions saying that, Judge Hull, you don't know what you're doing. And then there'll be two doors. Would that have impacted whether you would have switched or not? No. Really? Okay. And that's interesting. Most studies show if the number's above eight, that people start going, did I really pick the door? But all it really illustrates is your first choice was one and three, but people are much more likely to morph one and three into one and two than they are one in a million into one and two. Gotcha. (laughs) I'm not a pigeon, Steve. (laughs) All right. Well, that's good. I mean, I don't know. Professor Rosenhaus might say that's a bad thing, but I think we can move on with that analysis. Let's turn a little bit to the courtroom. Judge, I know you do mostly criminal cases yourself, and before that, you were a prosecutor. Obviously, you've been on the bench now for how long? Since March of 2009. So I just celebrated my 10th year on the bench. Congratulations. Thank you. So obviously, you, you mingle with other judges. You're aware, in general, of docket issues and you know judges' desires to see cases effectively resolved. In Kane County, what has been your attitude towards you know mediation programs in general? My background, Steve, came obviously from the state's attorney's office where there is no mediation and it's very adversarial and you go to trial. That's what you do. So when I first came onto the bench in March 2009, that was what I brought with me. Uh, I would have told you that myself, as well as a lot of people that came from the same background, wouldn't have looked at mediation in a bad light, but we didn't understand it and didn't really truly appreciate it. Ten years later, I can tell you that not only myself, but most judges in our circuit are huge fans of mediation. In fact, in just the last five years, we have developed a couple different types of mediation programs. One, a foreclosure mediation program. 
uh, and then now an abuse neglect in the juvenile division because we believe so strongly in it and we've seen the benefits uh, that we've wanted to try to expand the mediation to other areas of the court. No, that's great. And you said that you've seen the benefits. So what are, from a judge's perspective, the benefits of having a good mediation program? Well, first and foremost, it's the docket. The cases, there's a lot of cases that get filed. And so when you talk about the immediate benefit, the immediate benefit is when you have a case that's set for trial and you're trying to bring in jurors and you're trying to talk about how you're going to run that and how it's going to impact the rest of your court call. You have a parties or parties that go to mediation, they come back and they tell you that they've reached an agreement and that uh, docket issue disappears. So that's the most immediate benefit is that every case that goes to mediation, they're obviously not going to all be successful. But when parties do go to mediation in good faith uh, and they come back and they've reached a resolution, that reduces the amount of cases that are on the docket and allows us to really focus and concentrate on those cases we need to. Well, you know, one thing I read the Kane County rule for Article 10.1 for the civil mediation program, and the last line of it, you just mentioned good faith, and we had a brief discussion of this before the podcast began. I just thought it was very interesting, and for me, it's a tip for practitioners and, frankly, mediators throughout the country. As you know, I just moved to Texas, and Texas actually has jurisprudence that it's a little counterintuitive, says that trial courts cannot order parties to mediate in good faith. And that's because they were experiencing people who went to mediation, didn't settle, and then added counts to their lawsuit and had ancillary litigation over whether the other party did, in fact, mediate in good faith. And clearly, that's contrary to some of the concepts that we talked about with it being a confidential process, if a mediator needs to testify, that calls into question the neutrality. So I, I think I asked you this before, but so you haven't heard of and I haven't seen anything in Illinois where that's a problem. Fortunately, we have not come across that here in Illinois. Which is amazing to me that I actually moved to a jurisdiction that had the potential to be more litigious than where I came from, from Chicago. So, But it does show that different things come up regionally. And as a lawyer, I had a national practice and moving my office from Chicago down to Texas. I think we all frame our first bar certificate. And then I realized I had six, you know, district court certificates uh, from Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana that, you know, I put in a folder and took down with me to Texas. But so the cases that I litigated were not just here in Illinois. And you know, looking back at it, I realized that when I participated in a mediation, I didn't always research the mediation rules of the jurisdiction. I obviously was aware of the substantive legal issues that applied to our dispute. And so looking back at it, I think we talked about what this podcast was supposed to be. It's clearly not a CLE type of program, but hopefully people are getting some tips. And one tip, you know, all lawyers are told at the beginning, always look at the rules. That's why I started with looking at the Kane County rule at the beginning of this podcast. But there's similar rules and similar jurisprudence wherever you may be litigating. And I think it's always a good idea just to see what a jurisdiction may favor, because Texas clearly takes confidentiality so seriously to the point where they think it trumps any possibility of having litigation over good faith. Although there are some exceptions. Actually, there was a case that I saw that was a malpractice case in which if the party was allowed to proceed with stating that their attorney committed malpractice during the mediation, that they could proceed with that. 
again, that uh, <laughs> the idea as an attorney who has represented many clients during mediation, that the idea that something could have happened at mediation to be malpracticed is interesting to me. But, you know, I guess they're worried about that down in Texas. So that's my, my, my new jurisdiction. Hope you don't see any cases like that, Judge. Me too. <laughs> well, look, Judge Hull and I knew each other from college. Uh, we we're glad to reconnect here. Uh, you know, one thing, Judge, I, I wanted to tell you, in looking back over your career and looking at Google, I ran across an article from the Champaign News Gazette. I think when you first became an assistant judge, or maybe it's to your new role. I don't remember it. But I don't know if you remember the interview. It had to do about the 1989 Illini basketball team. Against Georgia Tech and, yes. a, and a meeting. Correct. Correct. So for those of you out in Texas or anywhere else, at one point in time, Illinois was a relevant program for sports. And in 1989, they became number one in the country. Clint, you were a season ticket holder. All five years I was there, Steve. Okay, and I was a season ticket holder there. But here's the thing that stuck out for me for that article. I didn't go to the Georgia Tech game. Well, you were probably at the meeting I was supposed to be at. No, I was interviewing for the job that you had. My RA interview was during the Georgia Tech game, so I did not go to that game. And I'm happy to, to have read that you were a little late for a meeting and went to that game. I had to weigh the uh, risk rewards. I didn't do anything analytical other than just I wanted to be in the stadium when Illinois won and became the number one team in the country. All right. Well, so for those of you, and I don't think he hides it very well, who didn't know that Judge Hull was an Illini fan, now you know. So use that however you may, you know, going forward. I have seen over the course of my judicial career. In the beginning, I saw a lot of red ties uh, worn by attorneys, and now there's a lot of orange that comes in. I, I'm not sure if that's coincidental, but uh, I would tend to think not. Well, I hope I didn't let you down, Judge, because I know I did go to Michigan for law school, but I think I've still passed the loyalty test in terms of where my loyalties lie when Michigan plays Illinois in any sports. That's, that's the only reason I agreed to come, Steve. <laughs> Well, we very much appreciate your presence here, Your Honor. I think if we learned anything today, it's that, you know, mediation has a lot of different aspects of it. There are aspects of it that go into how to conduct a mediation. Those will be things that I'll be talking about with other guests. I think it's good to hear as a mediator that the concept is well perceived by the judiciary. I think, Judge, one thing that you said which was interesting to me is that when you were a prosecutor, you almost looked at mediation, not down on it, but it just wasn't something that was a part of your practice or frankly what trial lawyers do. A, a very foreign concept, and, and you have it identified correctly in that it just kind of mystified why in the world would you not want to go to trial. And I think that's a good point in terms of how mediation and our formal judicial system interact, because not to demonize judges, but one thing that mediators need to point out to all litigants, even somebody who is fully confident that if they go to trial, they're going to win, is that while it may be fun for lawyers, I don't think you become a trial lawyer unless you like the idea of the trial. There may be other aspects of your job that you don't like, but when it's showtime, that's why you decided to become a lawyer. But lawyers need to always remember how the process plays out on their clients. And what good mediators can do is to really make sure that before it gets to that day, before it gets to trial, that all the parties fully understand what it means to go to trial. And 
So what we explain is to people that trials are hard. You know, most people, they can sit in a room without a court reporter and point a finger at somebody else and say, that person did X. But unless they're a professional testifier, I don't know that they fully understand what that's going to mean when they have to get on a stand, raise their hand, swear on the Bible, and tell the truth. And sometimes I think there's many people who went to trial who probably regret it. And even people who win at trial, the expense, the time that takes can be very, very difficult for people. So I think it's interesting, you know, as you described it in terms of why wouldn't you want to go to trial? As a mediator, it's almost the complete opposite. It's why would you want to go to trial when you can avoid a strange man or woman in a robe or 12 people that you don't know who on a Monday might rule in a different way than they will on Tuesday, take control of your destiny when if you're sitting at mediation, you've got the other side, the other side is ready to negotiate in good faith, you're ready to negotiate in good faith, why would you ever let it go to trial? After 26 years, being in the courtroom first as a prosecutor and then the last 10 years as a judge, I do think that you're absolutely right that people go into it, uh, litigants go into it thinking that there's percentages and that they're likely to win and that they're going to win. But what they don't take into account is human nature, the one that you just talked to about a jury or a judge. They don't really understand rules of evidence and how a judge may rule differently. And so during my 10 years on the bench, one of the hardest things is seeing parties being so distraught, uh, whether it be in a civil courtroom, a criminal courtroom, a family courtroom, when the ruling doesn't go the way that they believed it was going to go. So I 100% concur with you that the benefit of mediation is to be able to work through that process, to have control to be able to identify issues and work through those issues outside of the courtroom and to come to a resolution that both parties can agree upon. Because again, seeing the hardship and talking to all of my fellow judges, that's probably one of the hardest things to see when a, when a case doesn't go the way that the party thinks it's going to go. That's a very good point. And I think it goes a little bit back to the whole discussion of probability. I think there's some disconnect in our minds where if you say, I have an 80% chance of winning, that's a pretty high chance. But take a step back of what that means. 20% chance of losing is take a look at a calendar and look at the days in which you could go to trial. And granted, you're going to win most of them. But stare at the times where what that means is that you're going to get the result that you absolutely don't want to get. And, you know, how that's going to feel. And it's a difficult thing to explain to people if they haven't gone through it before. But it is one, I think, of the most important jobs for a mediator is because you're neutral. You know, a lawyer, I think, always has a little bit of difficulty. A good lawyer always explains weaknesses of their case to a client. But if they go too far, they're perceived as being you know, are you on my side? I'm going to find somebody else who's going to tell me what I want to hear. A mediator, I think, has the opportunity to try to explain that before it comes from somebody like yourself. I agree with you. And I think that the other thing that as a judge, I appreciate is uh, knowing our mediators in the county, knowing the types of people that they are. Uh, my experience has been that mediators or people that get into mediation are authentic and they truly are trying to come to a resolution that's not only in the best interest of their client, but also in the best interest of the system. And so they've identified weaknesses. They've talked about strengths. 
But they've also talked about that human element, which is very difficult because whether it's a family or an abuse, neglect, sometimes people can get carried away in wanting to win instead of what's in their best interests. And you've talked about court docket management. That's a huge benefit from the court system. But the other thing is the expense involved, the amount of money that has to get spent uh, when you're litigating, when you're going through discovery, when you're hiring expert witnesses. That's a cost to everybody. And so again, when you can, can look at a case, analyze a case and have a mediator who's going to really work hard at it, is going to work through not only the good and the bad, and is going to stick with it. The resolution is one that I think people are much happier with. And people walk away as a judge, I care about how they, they think about the court system, how were they treated by the court system. And although I don't have a survey that would back this up, I think that people walk away from a mediation much happier and much more satisfied than they do uh, after litigation. Well, you know, not to get back into a sports analogy, but I've heard often that judges call balls and strikes. Have you heard that phrase? In a, a, number, a number of times. And to be, and to be consistent, to be consistent, have that, have the that same strike, strike or zone. the low strike? Landing. The high strike. Okay, all right. But, you know, the interesting thing is I like to say a mediator has more leeway in the sense of if you're a judge and you call, you know, the low ball, you don't have any skin in the game of walking out and saying, you know, you're holding on to the ball a little bit too long. That's why the ball is going in. A mediator, I think, has a little bit more flexibility to not just say, I think the judge is going to call that a ball, but to talk to the parties about how they're playing the game so that they can, you know, get the resolution that they need. Whereas, you know, the judge, if the parties don't want to resolve anything, if the parties are determined to present certain arguments to the judge, you can only provide, you know, a ruling based on the law and not any advice as to how, you know, you can't pull attorney aside and say, you won today's motion, but what are you doing with the case? And I don't know, have you ever felt that? I feel that way every in most cases where, where you walk away and you've talked about seeing the end game. It's very hard as a judge to sit up there and see somebody run a motion or see somebody do an evidentiary issue. And, and even though they may have won the battle, you can see ahead and, and see that it's very unlikely they're going to win the war. But they don't see that. Neither does the client. What the client knows is that they just won a case or won a hearing. And that may motivate them that they want to do more in the courtroom. They want to litigate more. And yet, as a judge, you'd love to pull both parties in and both parties aside to, to let them know that it'd be best to try to resolve it without a trial. Well, hopefully hearing that from a judge, probably even more effective than hearing it from a little old mediator like myself. But I think those are good words to live by. And all attorneys, I think we all have a tendency to get lost sometimes in the details and to argue the issue in front of us. And I think mediation, one of its benefits is that at least once in a case, and maybe more than that, it gives the parties the opportunity to take a step back and you know focus on bigger issues in a way that you can expedite more than you can when you're litigating. You have to wait till that trial date to have the day of reckoning in court, where in mediation, that can be your day of reckoning. And as I said, that's really the reason why I've kind of pivoted to doing more mediations, because I find that to be something that allows me the opportunity to assist the parties. And I'm sure it's 
it's not quite what you have, but I'm sure one of the reasons you became a judge. At the end of the day, you call balls and strikes, but it has to be satisfying to know that you're helping the process. And while some litigants might not be happy about it, you're making sure that justice is found. And a good judge is hard to find, Judge, and we appreciate you know the judges that fit that bill. Well, thanks, Steve. And again, that goes right back to you and, and seeing not only yourself, but others turn towards mediation, because I think overall, when we look at trends in the system, um, I don't know if you will concur, but I think at one point in time when I began my career in the 90s, mediation wasn't looked upon as the way it is today. And I think that the trend is more people are willing to mediate, more people are willing to consider mediation. And the more people that have success in mediation, uh, I think that will only, again, continue to help how people feel about the system and how willing people are to engage in mediation in good faith, whether it's part of the local rule or not. Oh, absolutely. I think the statistics that are on that issue really bear that out, that I think 20, 30 years ago, a much higher percentage of cases ultimately went to trial. There were less opportunities to mediate. There were less local rules, regardless of whether they require good faith or not in them. And then there are today. I think we saw really an explosion of ADR statutes in the 90s and that the subsequent statistics show that since then, mediation works. And so I think that at the end of the day, when there's a question as to whether you should mediate or not, I think the answer is yes, because it works. And the harm of it not working is really insignificant. And one of the things that I tell litigants who are in front of me, because this always happens at mediation, I mean, not always, but it's very common. Somebody at some point is looking at you and going, well, look, if you can't get that guy to do X, you know, we're done. We have to walk away. And what I try to tell them up front at the mediation, if there's been a case that's been going on and civil cases can go on for years. So if there's been a case that's been in litigation for two years, which you know means the parties have probably been in conflict for you know longer than that. I tell them, how many hours has that been? How many hours prior to you walking in to mediate with me have you been unable to resolve this? And after two hours, you're telling me if I can't get him to do X, you're walking? I mean, at some point, you have to have a little bit more trust in the process. And if at the end of the day, say after four hours, after eight hours, it's not likely to be successful, well, then that's fine. I mean, I think one thing that a good mediator can recognize is there are certain cases that probably shouldn't settle. You know, there are. I would submit a smaller percentage than the attorneys who tell you that they have one of those cases. But certain cases, there might be a new law and parties just need to find out what the court's going to say about it. There's some times in civil litigation, some more than criminal, but in civil litigation, you'll have a situation where parties know they're going to lose at the lower levels, but they're saying, look, we think that this is the fact pattern that we need to get an appellate court to say that this line of cases is incorrect. And so we're willing to do that. And sometimes that's just a line and they're really not willing to pay for it. But if they have deep pockets and they are a frequent litigant, they're probably telling you the truth. But most of the time, somebody looks at you and says, you know, we're willing to go to trial. It's to tell you, tell that to the other side. And you know what happens when I go in the other room? They tell me the same thing. So everybody wants to let you know that they're willing to go to trial. Yet, as you pointed out, mediation's become more and more successful. And 
hopefully we've taken more and more cases off of your docket. But uh, I don't think you have to worry about job security. There's still plenty of people who get in front of you every day. Uh, well, you know what? Unfortunately, that's true. But but again, the trend is is going in a positive way. All right. Well, I'd like to thank Judge Hull for his time today. I'd like to assure both Judge Hull and anybody who's out there, mom, listening to this, I think, I hope that I am a much better mediator than podcast you know, coordinator. We're sitting here in front of equipment that literally was bought yesterday. I, uh, there's a red light on, so hopefully that means that this actually got recorded, Judge Hall. No, we appreciate your time. And so I guess for this episode, we're going to close the door. We'll keep it open a notch and get back to you for the next episode of Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. I'm your host, Steve Scholl. Thanks much. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.